Hello and welcome to Mount Week here at Necromancers of the Northwest. All this week on the website, we've been doing tribute to the trusty and noble steed, and we'll be continuing that trend on the podcast here today with a look at a couple of mount-related books and some talk about mounts in your game. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, a whole week devoted to horses? What were you thinking, Necromancers of the Northwest? Do we look like prepubescent girls to you? We don't care about horsies. If so, I definitely recommend you stick around because horses are a major part of the fantasy genre, and it's a shame that the way that they're so casually brushed aside in D&D. Uh, you see, there can be no denying that horses and more fantastic mounts are a staple of fantasy. The first thing that comes to mind are paladins and other knights in shining armor riding heavy cavalry, and that's a good start. But there's a lot more to horses in fantasy. If you go pick up an average fantasy book, there's a good chance that the main characters use horses as a primary means of transportation for at least a good part of it. The process of buying a horse is a big deal with lots of little tricks, and if the merchant or buyer is shady, sometimes big tricks, uh, involved, uh, which would make buying a car seem simple and straightforward. Many fantasy characters bond with their horse and develop a friendship with it, whether it's a magnificent charger or a simple, plodding, steady horse. These horses often develop their own personalities, and in some cases are more important and beloved characters than a variety of humanoid ones. For example, if you've read any of the Wheel of Time books, you'll remember that Bella, a decidedly normal and plain horse, manages to stick around for book after book, and is a lot more memorable than plenty of other characters. By contrast, in D&D or Pathfinder, horses tend to be something you pay a couple of hundred gold on, write down on your sheet, and then forget about. Since most GMs don't bother with travel times and you don't have to live with your character's sore feet, many players don't even bother getting a horse. Uh, they're certainly not going to use it in combat. Uh, you need to spend precious feats and skill points in order to do that effectively, or at least so it seems to most players. And even then, it's a big liability as your mount is a lot more vulnerable than you are. We noticed that, and not only decided to devote a week to mounts, we also wrote a book, uh, Necromancer's Grimoire, Steeds and Stallions, devoted to making your mounts more fun and interesting. And we weren't the only one, although as far as I can find, we were pretty damn close. So, since we already talked about Steeds and Stallions in a previous podcast, possibly multiple previous podcasts, around when it came out, uh, we're going to take a quick look today at another mount-related book, written by Dark Quest Games. It's called In the Saddle, Fur and Feather, Volume 1. The book begins with a discussion of horse coloration and other distinguishing features which help set one light warhorse apart from another. It includes a number of tables allowing you to randomly generate a horse's coloration, markings, exact height, in hands, and so on. Uh, most of this is purely decorative, like the coloration, for example, and the various markings, and even those that might normally have further reaching effects, like the horse's personality and various flaws or quirks about the horse, such as having a limp or being sickly, are left largely to the discretion of the GM as far as how to handle them. Similarly, their table for randomly rolling ages on the horse has entries like aging and on last legs, which don't seem to map directly to any actual age categories, and the book doesn't give any information for how these ages would have any mechanical effect on the horse. The randomly rolled speed and intelligence do have mechanical effects. They seem to be the only things here that do. Uh, the speed table will take the horse anywhere from a base speed of 10 lower than normal to 10 higher, which is fairly reasonable, but I'm not sure exactly what to do with the above average speed, which increases a horse's base speed by two, which, when we measure things in five-foot squares, isn't exactly helpful. I suppose a horse with that speed and the run feet would get an extra ten feet when running, and maybe round up to five when double-moving, but there's no question it's an odd number to work with. Um, the intelligence table is technically complicated as well, though it's a lot easier to simply hand wave away any problems. You see, when having the horse have one, while well, having the horse have one less intelligence isn't an issue, having an increase of one or two intelligence would generally transform the horse into a magical beast, which I'm confident is not something the authors intended. Still, it just takes a GM with common sense to rule that this is an exception to the rule, and the issue goes away and allows you to have a horse with much more intelligence than the average animal. After this, there's a section discussing care for mounts, which draws on some useful real-world advice about horses. This includes discussion of a horse's body language, grooming the horse, feeding the horse, caring for its hooves, and so forth. It also talks about some specific ailments and other health issues and conditions that can affect a horse, and ways to deal with them. This comes with four new mount-related diseases, some of which are pretty interesting, as far as diseases go. This also is where we get our first hint of what's probably my favorite thing about the book, 
the various new species of animal and magical beasts presented as options for mounts. There's not much interesting about them here, just some blurbs on some, but far from all, on how caring for them is different from horses. But we'll hear more from them later. This brings us to Chapter 2, entitled The Miscellaneous Use of the Riding Beast. This section is mostly devoted to talking about ways to use mounts and mount-like creatures, such as using them as beasts of burden or in the arena, with a focus on mounted arena combat rather than the mounts themselves battling, uh, as getaway vehicles for bandits and other thieves, as scouts going underground, as mounts for heavy cavalry like paladins, and so on. Uh, each of these topics has a brief introductory paragraph that explains, for example, the idea of using mount animals as forms of entertainment at a circus or fair, say, and then lists several choice creatures for the tasks, talking about why an elephant might be good for this or a horse good for that. The section also draws heavily on the new species of mount provided at the end of the book, but it largely does so in a way that uses many words, but says very little. And I doubt that most readers will get much out of this section of the book, as it mostly boils down to, this animal is also good at crossing the desert. Chapter 3 is entitled Racial Views, and as one might expect, discusses the various attitudes of core humanoid races towards mounts in general, and horses in specific. Since the outlook of the various races will vary dramatically from campaign to campaign, and the outlooks of individuals often differ from those of their race anyway, this section may or may not give you much mileage, depending on how much your GM agrees with it. That said, the way it talks about how much medieval human life, and even fantasy medieval human life, is dependent on the horse, is actually fairly inspiring and fun to read, though I could personally take or leave the information about gnomes or halflings and their relationship to mounts. This brings us to the fourth chapter, Improving Your Mount. The chapter jumps right in, without preamble, explaining their new system whereby you can train your mount and give it free feats. This process isn't quite as immediately appealing as it sounds, however, as it takes a full year to do so and requires a DC 20 or higher handle animal check. Plus, with the exception of skill focus, which the mount can apparently take as much as you want, the mount can only gain two feats in this way total ever. Finally, though not stated explicitly, it's implied that the mount can only take the feats discussed in the book, which include things like run, endurance, great fortitude, dodge, etc. There is some flavorful information here about what kind of training is being done, weights on the legs, for example, but sadly none of this information has any kind of mechanical effect on the check used to actually train them, which is always basically the same. Uh, so that information is, is purely flavorful and, and doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Uh, next up is Horse Tricks, which also has no introduction or explanation, but which seems clear to me, at least, are additional tricks that can be taught with Handle Animal, in addition to those in the core rules. Uh, a number of these tricks are listed as being things that warhorses already have, and it's nice to be able to train a non-warhorse into a warhorse, I guess, but I was similarly unimpressed by the carry a rider trick, which seems to exist only so that the authors could explain what the training process to get a horse to accept a rider is, rather than because they ever expected anyone to actually teach that trick. Some are useful, though, like Cavalry March, which lets the mount travel farther, presumably before getting fatigued, but it didn't specify, uh, or lie down on command, or even to bow on command, pick up specific items, etc. Uh, there, there are also some unusual tricks, which seem to be mostly for entertainment, such as giving an ashamed look, shaking its head yes or no, or performing a counting trick. Uh, after discussing mechanical abilities here, or mechanical abilities for horses, uh, they move on to mechanical abilities for riders in Chapter 5, Riders. This begins with a new skill, Heal Veterinary, which isn't really a new skill so much as it is the heal skill separated for animals. As an additional insult to the injury of having to spend skill ranks on a skill whose utility used to be completely in the realm of another skill, Heal, uh, veterinary heal imposes a bunch of penalties on most checks because things might work differently on some animals. Things get a little better from here as we move on to a discussion of various craft and profession skills, just giving background information on what sorts of horse equipment a blacksmith makes, for example, or why glue makers aren't to be hated by those who love horses. Uh, from here, the talk turns to feats, of which there are nine. Uh, none of these particularly wowed me, uh, but... If you're looking for a feat that says you can use your perform skill while riding, not that there was anything before that said you couldn't, or lets you sleep in the saddle, gaining benefits as though you had rested normally, or perform a ride-by pickpocket attempt, these will be the feats for you. 
Uh, the next section of the chapter is entitled Spellcasters, and then jumps immediately without another word into spells, uh, beginning with the spell Barding, Mage Armor for Horses, and moving through 19 more spells, all the way to Winged Mount, which grants the mount a fly speed. These spells aren't terribly exciting, and with the possible exception of the spell Claw of Flame, Frost, Acid, Electricity, I doubt that any of them will see much use at the table, though I'll admit that spells like Good Teeth are amusing and flavorful, even if rarely useful to the average adventurer. Like any good splat book of its time, we move from feats and spells onto the bread and butter of 3rd edition prestige classes. The 6th chapter again begins without any kind of introduction or lead-in with the Fog Rider, a somewhat cool prestige class that actually has nothing to do with horses or other mounts. I suppose it technically does give as much as a plus 5 bonus on ride checks made at night or in the darkness, but most of what it does is grant bonus to hide checks, also up to plus 5, grant an armor bonus made from fog and up to plus 4, and then in the last three levels allow you to create special fogs that paralyze foes, destroy fabrics such as clothing or sacks of goods, or potentially kill your foes. Uh, actually, overall, very few of the prestige classes has much to do with mounts. The Galloping Trollop class is all about seducing and tricking men. The Moon Rider primarily gains bonuses to attack and damage versus evil creatures and to saving throws to resist lycanthropy. The Phantasmic Scout just gains constant concealment and the ability to sound like more than one person. The Traveling Collector is a bounty hunter with no class features relating to mounts at all. And the Wandering Merchant can still use all his class features on foot, even if some of them are called things like Rider's Direction Sense. Only the Prestige classes Mounted Arcane Spellcaster and arguably the Saddleback Explorer really have anything to do with mounts, with the former essentially gaining a special cross between a familiar and an animal companion, as their mount, obviously, uh, and the latter mostly just granting bonuses on things like wilderness lore checks to find feed and shelter. Uh, in fact, another major flaw running through all of these prestige classes is that very few of them have interesting class features. For the most part, they break down into you gain a bonus on skill X when used for purpose Y, or, in some more rare cases, you gain a bonus to attack, damage, AC, etc., which scale as you gain more levels. Uh, while most scale in reasonable progressions, sometimes they do weird things, like, for example, the Wandering Merchant, whose Rider's Direction Sense ability maxes out at plus four at fifth level, while its Detect Thief, Haggle, and Find Trail abilities continue to progress to the end of the class, with no apparent reason as to why the one is concentrated solely in the first half of the class. With the exception of the Phantasmic Scout, who gains 50% concealment at all times, all of the prestige classes are a little on the weak side as well, and I seriously doubt anyone will take the opportunity to play as any of these, as they have nothing fun or interesting to recommend them whatsoever. Uh, this chapter also provides the Mongol class, a base class based on the fighter, designed to emulate the famous horse archers of the steppes. Unfortunately, it's based a little too heavily on the fighter, and with the possible exception of what feats can be taken as bonus feats, there is no change to the class features whatsoever. Uh, they get two more skill points and a die 12 hit dice and a good reflex and fortitude saves instead of just fortitude, all of which combine to give the, the class a number of advantages over the normal fighter. Um, as a trade-off for this, they must always have full ranks in ride as well as a certain number of ranks in craft bow making, something that's largely covered by the additional skill points. Uh, if you're reading through the class features of the Mongol, and you suddenly reach something that says Recurve Bow Light, and assume that it's a new class feature that didn't make the table for whatever reason, flip to the next page. You'll discover that we've now transitioned to new mundane weapons and armor, and they simply didn't bother to tell us. These weapons and armor, for the record, aren't terribly impressive from a design perspective, and don't really do anything you couldn't do before, except, I guess, get a really cheap plus three composite bow that deals one to eight points of damage, or composite short bow that deals one to eight points of damage. Uh, actually, when I say really cheap, I mean it's impossible to get or make one because they all have a price listed as handmade to indicate that they aren't bought or sold, but without a price, we can't figure out how long it would take to craft one or what the material cost would be. Oops. The entire Mongol debacle is wrapped up with a stat block for a Mongol horse, which I guess is nice. <coughs> Chapter 7 is all about chariots, giving a history of these wheeled war weapons and getting the reader pumped up for some cool chariot combat, as well as providing the basic rules for chariots and fighting from them, uh, what sort of cover they grant, bonuses on attack, how many attacks you can make, concentration DCs to cast spells, how to drive them, all that stuff. 
There is a new skill here as well, the charioteering skill, which is basically the ride skill but with more limitations. Uh, there are some feats here as well, and these, like the feats from before, <coughs> aren't anything to write home about. Uh, also, any of the good ones require that the feat be possessed by both the rider and the warrior, or the driver and the warrior on the chariot. chariot. There are then three and a half pages of famous and infamous chariots, which aren't worth reading. Uh, besides the fact that the chariots have names that make them sound like they came from a random chariot name generator, such as the Ambush Chariot of the Endmarsh lizard, fo lizard Folk and Halfling Weasel Assault Chariot, <laughs> or even Cobalt Horde Chariot of the Bitterwater Infestation. <laughs> Most of the fluff about these chariots is frankly dull, and there's not much in the description that isn't already in the name. Information is given on the walls, speed, uh, and other information about the chariots, as well as drivers and combatants. In the case of NPCs, just race, level, and relevant gear and feats are list listed. Uh, moving swiftly away from chariots, we find ourselves in Chapter 8, Items. This has mundane items, including different sorts of saddles and different kinds of wagons and things that can be attached to mounts. I could go into more detail, but frankly, there's nothing interesting to say about any of these. The only worthwhile part of this chapter is the descriptions of the various new creatures that can be used as mounts and the prices for purchasing them. Since there's a lot more about the mounts at the end of the book, though, I'll hold off on talking about them for now. Chapter 9 has some magic items, including horseshoes enchanted as weapons. Players will be relieved to know that such weapons cost only one-fourth as much to enchant as normal weapons. And while the text implies that this is for a set of four shoes, it's not quite 100% clear, meaning that the total cost may be the same if your GM is particularly harsh. Uh, there are a variety of other enchanted horseshoes as well, some of which are interesting, like the horseshoes of ventriloquism, which can make it sound like you're coming from a different direction other than the one you actually are, a subtle effect with lots of potential that will simply never translate well into actual use at the table, I fear. Uh, or the horseshoes of lizard prints, which cause the horse's tracks to resemble those of a giant lizard. On the other hand, there's also horseshoes of jumping and horseshoes of elvenkind, which, while far from creative, may be useful. Uh, there are some other mount-related magic items, but most of them are just existing magic items repurposed in the form of something that goes on a mount. While the worst offenders are probably the saddlebags of holding, very few, if any, particularly felt particularly magical to me. Uh, ironically, the most interesting magic items are probably the self-propelled wagon and the flying wagon, which in fact do away with the need for mounts at all. Uh, finally, we reach Chapter 10, The Bestiary. This section contains 19 new fantastic creatures that can be used as mounts. They run the gamut from CR1 to CR4, with the notable exception of the Fung Glutton at CR7. In addition, and in addition to a full stat block, they each come with around a page of fluff and background information, as well as some surprisingly good hand-drawn art. Uh, the stat blocks aren't all that exciting, and a few of the monsters few of the monsters here have any interesting abilities, but that's okay, because the real strength of each of these mounts is their fluff, and in general, the idea of the mount. Admittedly, some are better than others, but most of them are solid ideas, and some of them are downright cool. Take, for example, my personal favorite, the Gabbergib. This creature has two bird-like heads which love conversation, and when there's no one else for the monster to pester, its two heads will talk to each other nearly incessantly. The creatures are perhaps a little clingy and have a tendency to invite themselves into adventuring parties and not take subtle hints that they're not wanted. I'm also a big fan of the Dragus Wolf, a draconic variant of a dire wolf, which looks really cool and is an interesting idea, even if the hard and fast rule that the only way to have one as a mount is to save its life is a little much for my taste. Uh, so now we've covered the various parts of the book. There's a couple of things about the book as a whole you should probably know. First of all, it was written for 3.0, and so you may need to do a bit of work, or at least interpreting, to get it set up for 3.5 or Pathfinder. Though again, since the best part of the book is the concept behind some of the new mounts and not their stat blocks, uh, this may not even be a real issue. Secondly, the book is poorly written. I don't just mean the technical writing, though, as I've been hinting for a while now, there are numerous places where it's really unclear what the authors are trying to say uh, when it comes to the rules terms. Most of that can be worked around just by making an educated guess, though, so it's not that big of a deal. 
I also don't mean the layout with the jarring transitions and lack of introductions. No, what, what I mean is that the author has clearly never been introduced to the comma or the possessive apostrophe, and that these, among other basic writing problems, can occasionally make it difficult or frustrating to read through the book. Also, occasionally the author slips into the first-person tone, which in this case is awkward and unpleasant. Uh, all that being the case, <coughs> you're probably expecting me not to recommend the book. After all, I've said a lot more negative things about it than positive things. I hate the prestige classes, I was unimpressed by the chariots, the feats, the spells, and the magic items. In fact, the only thing I really liked was the handful of mountain-like monsters, and even then their stats weren't all that interesting. <coughs> As if that wasn't enough reason for me not to recommend it, we did make our own book about horses, and that's going to make me a bit partial against a similar book. While all that's true, the book has some other things going for it. If you can look past uh, the lack of certain punctuation and the ambiguous phrasing, something most people who aren't English majors should ultimately be able to do, the writing is actually pretty good, and I enjoyed most of the background information about how to care and train the mounts. Uh, the book does a good job of getting you excited about the prospect of a game where your loyal steed is an important part of the game, and that that companionship of man and beast is an important and valuable. And, as far as it being similar to Steeds and Stallions, the fact is that it's not, really. If you want a book that provides mechanical effects for the quality and personality of horses, and that gives new rules to make racing on horseback exciting, you want Steeds and Stallions. What In the Saddle, Fur and Feather Volume 1 offers is a lot of very different things, chief among which are the 19 new species of mount. Uh, the only thing the two books have in common <coughs> is that they have background information about caring for horses. In fact, if you really want to make mounts important in your game, you could get in the saddle for its exotic new mounts, and then steeds and stallions to apply mount quality and quirks to both horses and those mounts for a truly robust and dynamic experience. Anyway, the issue here isn't about the value of, into the, of steeds and stallions, uh, nor is it really about steeds and stallions at all, if I'm perfectly honest. It's whether or not into the saddle is worth your time and money. Now, it's 101 pages long, which is pretty impressive, and it's currently marked down on DriveThruRPG for a mere $3.98. Normally, 100 pages for 4 bucks is a pretty great deal, but as I've said, there's a lot of this book that isn't really worth the effort, which makes it a much more difficult call. Ultimately, I don't have a recommendation for you. If you think that a book that's going to make you want to make mounts a larger part of your game, and which will provide a number of cool ideas for animals to be mounts, and some interesting thoughts on ways to use mounts, but with little to no useful crunch content, will be worth $4 for you, then go for it. If you don't care about horses and don't want to, or only care about ways to pimp out your characters, keep walking. Yeah, so uh, to me it sounds like a horrible book, and I wouldn't buy it. I, would, I wouldn't even think about buying it because it sounds awful. But I, I think it's time that we move on to Best Beasts. Hey, 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 hey. Who reviewed the book? Did you review the book? Well, no, and I'm not even going to read it now. Okay, well, there we have it. Don't listen to him. I, I don't want to say buy the book per se, but, you know, it, it has merits. Yeah, apparently it has merits. Just, you know, not not obvious ones or ones that, that you would necessarily want. Uh, so, uh, but it does sound like if you are looking for a product where you're going to have to rewrite the stat blocks for their cool monster concepts and, uh, and you know, ignore their prestige class content and redesign their Mongol class because it's bad and a uh, number of other issues, then, then this is probably the book for you. It's, it's possible for the record that uh, some of those great mount concepts may have been things like an intelligent arctic fox that um you have to befriend rather than being able to tame and say i don't know uh half warthog half donkey that doesn't really have any interesting things about it. there there are good things to the book i enjoyed reading it well as long as we're arguing about things anyway we might as well move on to a productive argument where we can talk about a mount that's actually cool. Or at least I think so. It's time for Best Beasts, where we'll be examining the Nightmare. So, uh, Nightmares, are they cool? Obviously. I mean, have you ever seen a Nightmare? I mean, just look at it. It's jet black. It's got burning red eyes. It's a super muscled horse. It's cool looking. Um, it's possessed of crazy magical powers. It's evil. Evil's cool. Everybody knows that. 
just, you know, listen to the media. They'll tell you it's bad, therefore it's good. Uh, so, I mean, nightmares are the Harley Davidson of fantasy mounts. Bad boys ride them. Uh, sometimes night hags, admittedly, but we'll just sort of gloss over that. Uh, and everybody looks like a total badass while they're doing it. Uh, the true measure of coolness is how cool you make those around you look. And the nightmare makes everybody look like a total just kick-ass, you know, mounted guy. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> they make him look good. Um, I mean, come on, ask yourself. Do I want to look, you know, all badass and cool riding on an awesome flying, plane-shifting, astral-traveling horse? The answer is yes. You want a nightmare, don't you? Anybody can see why the nightmare is the coolest creature one could own, and, and I don't feel a need to argue about it any further. Well, it's hard to follow that incredibly eloquent argument, but <laughs> I'm going to do my best. If there's one creature in the entire bestiary that doesn't deserve its name, it's almost certainly the nightmare. There's two kinds of nightmare. The terrifying dreams that cause you to wake up screaming and drenched with sweat, and a flaming horse with a bad pun for its name. What is it about a fiery horse that really calls for the name Nightmare, anyway? They're not especially frightening. They don't have a fear aura or anything like that. They're black, sure, but so are normal horses. And they're on fire, which makes them seem a lot more like a dawn mare or a sunset mare, if you ask me. It's not like they can only move around at night or anything, either. If you wanted to name a creature Nightmare, you could have done so much cooler things with it. It could have been some sort of incorporeal creature that visited people in their dreams and terrified them to death. It could have been a creature that always appeared as its viewer's greatest fear. It could have been a monster with a gaze or similar ability that caused its victims to go into a coma where they were mentally tortured in hundreds of creative ways. It could have been any number of things, but what was it precisely? What did they do with a name as evocative and powerful as Nightmare? They gave us a flaming horse. The whole thing's a bad pun. But wait, there's more. Not only is the so-called Nightmare a flaming horse, it's a flaming horse that can fly for no apparent reason. And it can plane shift, too, because, you know, why the hell's not? The entire thing is stupid and contrived and a complete waste of what could have been a cool name for a monster. So, what are our real opinions on Nightmares? Well, there's a little bit of a controversy here as well. Ultimately, I think we can both agree that uh, if you are a villain or some other kind of, you know, big bad guy, uh, then riding a nightmare is going to be cooler than riding an average horse or, or you know, certainly ride cooler than riding like a pony. Um, and most of the time will probably be cooler than walking in as well. Um, on the other hand, the exact amount of mileage that you're going to get coolness-wise out of riding a nightmare as opposed to one of those other means of transportation. That's going to depend on your audience. Um, some people think that nightmares are about as trite as, for example, Ghost Rider, whereas other people think that Harley Davidsons are really cool. Yes, those of us who are correct believe that Harley Davidsons are really cool. But I, I will admit that you know there there is room for other cool mounts as well. Uh, Black Dragon is a good example. Uh, and there are others. So, you know, the Nightmare, certainly on its own, just as a scary flaming horse for no reason, isn't necessarily very cool. Uh, so it, it's going to kind of depend a lot on, on exactly what, what scene the Nightmare is being evoked in. And if that's going to play well to the Nightmare's favor, it's going to be a cool creature. And if it if it isn't, then it's not really going to be. So it's probably landing somewhere in the middle. All right. So... Now that we've been talking about mounts for about half an hour now, uh, it's time for us to move on to talk specifically about using mounts in your game and making them interesting. As I said, probably my favorite thing about the book we reviewed today was the, uh, the way that it makes you want to make mounts a more central part of your game. And so now I'd like to spend a little bit of time. Josh and I are going to give you a few tips on how to do that. Uh, so the number one thing, the, the first thing that, uh, that you'll want to do is to make acquiring the mount interesting. This is uh, a way for the mount to give a sort of a first impression to the player, uh, more so than the character, uh, and, and make the mount feel special and important. Uh, I, I think that a lot of people don't realize that buying a horse back in the day, and, and probably even more so now, is a lot like buying a car 
Uh, there's a lot of things involved. You don't just go out and buy the first horse you see because they're not, theoretically at least, they're not all the same. Um, you know, instead of instead of kicking the hubcaps and getting the Carfax, you look at their teeth and um, other things. I don't I don't know that much about horses off the top of my head, uh, but the fact is it's an involved process and uh, as anybody who's ever seen you know a, a medieval sort of movie or anything like that knows uh, there, there's horse dealers or shady shady people who always do shady shady things and you definitely you know there's going to be some good horses there's some bad horses in fact uh, it's important if you let the characters go go pick out their own horse or they go buy a horse at the stable which i strongly recommend you have them do uh, it's important for the buying to actually be interesting and for the the player to suddenly invest in their mount uh, for there to be good and bad horses and for the characters to have a potential at least to be able to tell the difference this gives us a challenge uh, figuring out which horse is the good one a reward having the horse that is better and in this case you should make sure that there is an actual reward here ideally a mechanical statistic award uh, reward for the mount being better but even if it's just you know uh, and and johnny's mount looks really cool as he goes through the streets as the dm give it a little bit of attention actually reward the player for picking the horse that you said was better or that you decided was better and then also potentially there could be a penalty maybe there are bad horses and again even if it's not a mechanical penalty you know make sure that i don't know the the commoners in the street all point and laugh as uh, as timmy goes down the street on a on a donkey or, you know, the uh, Sally's horse has a tendency to kick her when she's trying to get on the saddle, whatever. Uh, something so that so that the characters who made a good choice can, you know, they, they feel invested in their mount. They made a choice about the mount. This is theirs. They picked it out. Um, it sort of, they, they internalize it. They make it more important to them. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the players who are stuck with, the bad mount is possible that they're going to send him straight to the glue factory and go get a new one, and that's great, you know, whatever. Sad, but whatever. Um, but on the other hand, you know, everyone's seen the movie where the uh, the the boy and his dog or whatever, and they, they don't get along, and then they go through adventures, and suddenly they do, and everyone loves the fact that the, the you know, horse kicks people or whatever. It, it doesn't matter. The important thing is, um, you know, that gives them a little bit of personality. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. Um if you really want to make sure that mounts become an important part of your game, uh, you know, there are other ways to make them, to, to get PCs to be making these sorts of choices and, and all of that before, rather than having them go spend a lot more money than they'll probably want to spend, especially at low levels, on something that they may not actually get that much benefit out of uh, directly. And one of that is, you know, you could have a... You could have an adventure instead of saying, hey, you get 200 GP apiece, maybe the PCs could be rewarded with any horse from my stables. And they, again, they now go and they pick out which horse they think is the best. Uh, similarly, you know, maybe they maybe they run across some bandits or whatever. The bandits have some horses and the PCs can now acquire those horses and they decide, you know, maybe they squabble amongst each other about who gets which horse, whatever. Um, there's lots of ways that you can go about doing that. Once they have the horse, you want to make, or whatever other mount, you want to make sure that the mount is important uh, to the game. The, the making the mount a central figure of the game makes it easier for the mount to be a central figure of the game, tautological though that may sound. Um, and so, you know, there's a number of ways you can go about doing this. Uh, some of the more heavy-handed ones are, you know, the mount may be necessary for travel in a certain places, especially the case with flying mounts. You know, you're not going to get to that island in the sky without some sort of griffin or dragon or I guess an airship is not really a mount. But anyway, uh, maybe there aren't any airships there and teleportation doesn't work. The point is um, you need the mount to get there. This becomes harder with mounts that don't fly. Um, if, if you're going on a, if it's a land-based mount, well, that's going to be kind of hard in general. Um, you know, you might, with some creative, uh, some creative gene splicing, come up with a uh, come up with a mount that can allow the PCs to go deep underwater without necessarily, you know, you know, maybe it provides them with some ability to breathe air, like one of those. Wasn't there a Star Wars fish that's got like a big, uh, big space on the inside you can sit in, and it's just, anyway. <laughs> okay, apparently not. I guess I'm crazy. Whatever the case, um, you know, something like that. Uh, alternatively, you know, another way to, to make the mount important is make the mount really cool. Uh, 
for those of you who are a little bit, uh, for those of you who have read the Dragonlance books, you'll probably be aware that that in particular setting, which was a whole, you know, long, whole line of products back under TSR, uh, that whole campaign setting is pretty much based on the, on the single uh, concept that, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you had guys who did jousts in the sky on dragons? It, it's pretty much all about riding dragons and being dragon riding knights. Uh, and so, you know, that's another case where it became became important mostly just because, hey, dragons. Um, of course, there are probably better ways to go about doing it other than, than to be so heavy-handed. Um, you can, for example, give the PCs chances to be involved in races or other kinds of competitions where the quality of their mount might be important. So, again, you know, if they're going to get in a race and they all have the same light warhorse stat blocks, it's not going to be all that fun or interesting. But if there was something differentiating the horses, um, and there's lots of ways that you could go about doing that, uh, then once you once you do, once they have that, then now their mount their mount is important in the race, and it's not just all about their ride checks. It doesn't matter what the hell's underneath them. Um, similarly, you know, it doesn't have to be races. If races aren't your thing, there could be horse shows or. Um, like you know, I'd go watch the uh, go watch Animal Planet. They have all of those like dog things. Is uh, I guess less of a mount thing, but you know you could be riding giant attack weasels or whatever. Uh, and you know you could definitely put a giant attack weasel through its paces in some sort of maze or something. They could jump through hoops, all that sort of junk. Um, uh, alternatively, you could encourage mounted combat. Currently. Mounted combat isn't that great most of the time. You don't get to make your full attacks. The horse is a vulnerability that, you know, if, if you take him out into to battle, then there's a good chance that some goblin with a spear is just going to kill it. Um, you are you have to spend feats and skills in order to, to be able to effectively ride. The horse, the space is, is awkward and it's difficult to take them into dungeons. All that stuff, uh, that makes it, more difficult. For one thing, if you want the mouse to be central in the campaign, you probably shouldn't be putting a whole lot of, you know, narrow corridors and underground ruins. Probably going to want to avoid that. You're going to want to be looking at more big open fields and um, that sort of thing. Similarly, um, you know, you could, if you were so inclined, uh, if you really wanted to encourage um, encourage mounted combat, that sort of thing, you could do some sort of feat subsidy where you know everybody gets mounted combat for free or, or whatever just to encourage people to go about doing that um alternatively again you could put the players in situations where they really don't want to be on foot uh while most of the time you're gonna have difficulty mechanically doing that um you know there's nothing to make the point more than some uh more than some effective light cavalry with bows uh, who can just stay out of the PC's range, harry them with arrows, and just laugh as they run after the uh, after these archers who, who just stay out of their range. Uh, those are ways that you could go about doing that. As an absolute last resort, mounts reduce travel time. You travel faster on a mount. If you make travel time important to your game, then suddenly having a fast mount becomes important. So, instead of having the princess be sacrificed conveniently two minutes after the PCs arrive in the evil wizard's room, maybe she's going to be sacrificed on the third no matter what, and those PCs had better find a quick way to get there. All of a sudden, now it, it becomes important, you know, whether or not <coughs> they're going on foot, or if they have mules. They're not going to get there on a mule they're going to need a fast horse. Yes, and uh, when you need a fast horse or uh, anytime you're looking to make mounts important to the game or looking to acquire mounts so that they can eventually be important to the game, it's important that those mounts have some personality of their own. The, uh, the first thing I would consider when looking to use mounts in a game is to make sure that they each have their own sort of unique flavor and, and adopt a sort of character of their own. Uh, so when you're doing this, there are a couple of important tips that you need to keep in mind. Uh, the first and foremost thing is probably to uh, to give your mounts some names. This will not only let people identify them, but you know it, it sort of gives them a uh, I, uh, gives them a sense of identity to be able to call it something specific other than my horse or that light war horse, uh, and it, it sort of gives it a, a 
personality beyond uh, beyond just its stats, just right there. And so when you're giving it a name, there's a couple of things you, that you should uh, that you should look at. Uh, you might want to, for instance, give the players the opportunity to name their own mounts. This will let them connect on a uh, on a personal level with the creature, because you know they named it. It's kind of now it's really theirs. Uh, if you know for whatever reason you know realism or you know players are bad at picking names, uh, I know I've been around quite a few players who've had trouble with naming their you know PC characters and let alone mounts. Uh, you know you might need to come up with some names of your own. Uh, whatever the case, if you're a player or if you're the GM, you need to make sure that horses and uh, and other mounts, I suppose, have names that are easy to remember. Uh, so if you're riding dragons, you might want to give them more common names than Thizzer, Thracker, Thraxerix, so that people week after week can can you know give it that name, so that that sense of identity matters more than uh, than something they wrote down at the top of the sheet. And the name should also be uh, be somewhat exciting. They should evoke an image of the horse. So you know Paul isn't very good unless there's going to be a story behind why it's called Paul. Maybe, you know, the character who owns the horse is naming it after their, you know, dead uncle or something. Uh, or, you know, something like that. I mean, there should be a story behind the name or it should identify something in, about the creature. Uh, which moves me on, I, I suppose, to the next tip, which is that mounts should have a very uh, sort of unique uh, description. This is, this is really mostly important for your PC's mounts. But it's also important if you're going to have like like a race and you need to differentiate a lot of mounts. You know, this one's black and, and brown is, is okay, but you should really be going beyond that to look at, at a lot of different factors. You know, is it muscular? What what color it is is important, but uh, but also does it have any markings? Uh, you know, does it have any kind of particular ticks? Is it like missing an ear? Something something like that that's going to that's going to sell the appearance and allow everyone to visualize the creature so that that when you know storm comes around the uh the image of the uh the big gray war horse with a uh with, with it with bristling fur just comes straight to mind and you don't uh you don't end up falling flat on the image uh, and it really comes out to matter uh, along the same lines you need to make sure that mounts actually have personality traits and quirks that make them different from one another Simply differentiating them on a physical level really isn't good enough. You need to uh, make sure that their behaviors are different and uh, that their overall performance varies from animal to animal. This will make them feel more like they're actually animals and less like, you know, statues or, or even, you know, like a car or something like that to, to give it that sort of extra bit of life that you get from, uh, from being quirky. Uh, you can get a good list of uh, of starting points in a book like Steeds to Stallion, Steeds and Stallions, but uh, but the, you know you can use your imagination as well, and uh, you know you need to make sure that uh, that e each animal, particularly if the whole group has one, uh, behaves significantly differently. Uh, and then to further that, when you're playing the game, you need to actually make sure that these quirks and personality traits come up you need to, to use them so that they don't just get forgotten about uh, you, I mean a mount's gonna feel like a pretty minor element a lot of the time so you need to really be sure that these kinds of things come up to keep it from fading into the background uh, so the the next thing I think that uh, that you might want to look at when trying to make mounts more interesting in your game is is actually caring for them uh, when you have a living animal in your in your care it's you know going to be an important uh, element to groom it and feed it and all that sort of thing so that uh, that you actually sort of get the experience of rearing the animal and not just of having a nice you know 20 foot bonus to your movement speed every now and then or you know the ability to fly when you couldn't before uh, so a large uh, part of that's going to be making sure that you're keeping track of how healthy and well-fed and happy the animal is and uh, so if you say want to give it a disease at some point i mean that's not something i would ordinarily recommend uh, you know diseasing the uh, the pc stuff or or wrecking it but uh but here it can sort of give you a good moment to uh to try to uh, evoke the uh, the sort of emotional response you get when uh when a trusted animal or a trusted or a trusted companion rather uh, is sick and needs caring for and it 
sort of gives your your players a chance to to look after something that's kind of theirs um and then even when your your animals aren't uh in malfeasance or they're they're not in bad shape you know the uh just general day-to-day sort of grooming and care can re- can really go a long way towards making the uh the animal feel like it's more a part of the group or it's it's more something that your PCs are interacting with regularly a uh, bad habit with these kind of mounts is to go okay so I bought enough feed let's just dock one every day uh, but if you spend time you know washing the thing or making sure it has time to graze taking it out for exercise every now and then you know th- that kind of thing can really make it more of an experience than if you just sort of let it to lie and, and it also gives you an opportunity to show how different characters care for their animals differently uh, and gives you as a GM a, a good opportunity to sort of wag your finger at the druid if he's not doing a good enough job. That's true. And as uh, as Josh pointed out, um, you know there is some information about the uh, the animal care and uh, and that as well in Steeds and Stallions. Uh, and to uh, to to step aside from the uh, the purely you know self important shilling for a second there, uh, also. A major factor in the other book we reviewed, or that the book we reviewed today, the um, In the Saddle, Fur and Feather, Volume 1, um, also does an excellent job of telling you some things that you might want to know about what's involved in that kind of horse care. You know, uh, you have to, apparently, uh, you should be, you know, like like digging all of the pebbles and things out from under their hooves every day, all, all of that stuff. There's all sorts of great stuff about that in that book as well, and that is one of the major reasons why you might consider picking that up if there was any confusion about that before um moving on uh i've got a couple of mount related adventure ideas to throw out there for for gms so uh first of all um as we uh i don't think actually got around to 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 mentioning before um you know being a horse thief back in the day kind of a lot like being a car thief grand theft auto grand theft horse it's a big thing um, and so, you know, people, people look down very, people are not very happy with horse thieves. And one thing that you could do is, you know, for one thing, the PCs mounts or horses could get stolen, but even if not, you know, a great way to start introducing the ideas of mounts being important and a big deal in the setting, you know, have the PCs go track down some horse thieves and bring them to justice. Uh, maybe there they even find some really fine stallions that sort of thing uh get the ball rolling on that uh another thing you could do is they could be forced to go out and they could be hired to go out and capture an exotic mount like a griffin or something uh and bring it back in one piece um this obviously uh, becomes more difficult than just going out and slaying the griffin or the manticore or what have you um with some expansions to the handle animal skill and a group that enjoys role play you could probably also make an adventure similarly about breaking in and training such a mount uh, especially if the mount was intelligent, though at that point it becomes a little more morally ambiguous and distasteful for uh, for a wider amount of the audience. But still, um, you would, before you decide to embark on, on such an adventure, if you're getting excited about that, you would almost certainly need to make some expansions to the handle animal skill um, in order to make that a fun and enjoyable thing. Um, otherwise, it's probably not going to do you that that well another thing you could do is you could have a grand cross-country horse or some other kind of race um horse race or, or some other kind like griffins or dragons or manticores all come to mind uh but you know once out of sight of the judges not everyone is playing fair the pcs <coughs> may get involved in um in mount-to-mount combat as they're racing across the land or there may be a bunch of traps laid for them in the path that they need to their mount needs to get around all, all sorts of fun things. Um, similarly, uh, someone might be sabotaging various horses at the local joust or the local horse race. The horses suddenly collapse um, at the uh, at the tournament before the before the knight's lances even meet, or you know horses are are dying off or something terrible is happening to them. Uh, the PCs need to find out who is it and how are they doing it because it's not clear. So now they have to. Now they they find themselves suddenly finding out a whole lot more than they probably ever um, ever knew about you know horse care horse feeding uh, who would have access to do this what are they what's going on all of that gives a great window into uh, into the the care and, and training of horses and may get players suddenly 
interested in that as well. So, now that you've listened to us going on about mounts and how great they are, maybe you're chomping at the bit to start playing a character a little more devoted to his mount. Perhaps you want to play one of those mythical Mongol horse archers, or maybe you're a more of a knight in shining armor sort of guy, or maybe you just want to be a cavalry wizard. Whatever the case, you've cracked open the core rulebook, and as we were talking, you've started looking at what realistically you'd need to do to be an effective cavalry unit, and naturally you're starting with mounted combat. Or are you? Let's find out in this week's Optimal Options. So, as you probably aren't aware if you haven't played a mounted combat character before, what the mounted combat feat does is once per round negate a single attack made against your mount, something that your GM is likely only likely to do if he becomes particularly frustrated with you in any case. Uh, most of what you need in order to be an effective cavalryman is done with the ride skill, and this feat doesn't grant any benefits to it. Of course, the other thing that mounted combat does is grant you access to a variety of other mount-related feats. So... Let's take a quick look at those and see what we see, shall we? If you're planning on being a mounted archer, you will almost certainly want mounted archery, as this is going to have, have the penalties you take for firing from horseback. While minus four isn't going to be that big of a deal at high levels, and minus two will still feel like a rather substantial penalty at low levels, when it comes to attack bonus, every little bit counts, and you'll want to make sure your attack bonus is as high as possible for when you start piling on things like rapid shot and deadly aim further decreasing the bonus. So even though a horse archer is unlikely to ever have his mount attacked, he'll still want to take mounted combat just for mounted archery. Ride by attack is another feat that can be of great utility under the right circumstances, though not to horse archers. Uh, this lets you make a charge action as normal, but you can divide your movement up between before and after the attack. Since your horse likely has a movement speed of 50 feet, this gives you 100 feet to play with. If you play your cards right and your opponent isn't too bright about his movement and you have a nice clear field without other combatants in the way, you could realistically ride back and forth across your target without him ever getting to hit you. If you had time, then, even if the target moves in a way to keep you from doing that, your greater maneuverability will let you circle around, finding an opening, and hit him danger-free every couple of rounds. Range attacks, other enemies, and highly maneuverable foes notwithstanding. Since you'll likely be doing most of your combats with the rest of your party, though, and they're sure to get right where you need to be, this is one that's probably better on paper than in practice at the table. Especially since, again, a lot of your combats will probably involve either more than one opponent or an opponent who is at least as maneuverable as you are when you're on your horse. Ride by Attack does provide access to Spirited Charge, though, which allows you to deal double damage when charging on horseback. This is important because when you're mounted, you don't get to make full attacks, so your damage output is dramatically decreased. This will hardly make up for it beyond 11th level or so, but it's a start, and it will likely be necessary in order to make an effective mounted melee combatant. Trample, another mounted combat feat, is fun in theory, allowing you to overrun without giving your opponents a chance to get out of the way, something that any GM who's ever used overrun knows is very frustrating, and letting your mount make an attack against the downed target. It's not likely to be the most effective of combat tactics, but it's fun and might be worth a try. Finally, Unseat is a feat that's far too situational. Unless you have a very good reason to believe your DM is going to throw a bunch of mounted NPCs at you, I wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole or lance. So, that addresses most of the fighter types that might be fighting on horseback. But what about the mages? Is there anything they can do to offset those terrible concentration checks that would cause them to lose all of their spells if they ever tried to cast from horseback? Well, the answer is no, at least as far as the core rules go, but not for the reason you might think. You see, concentration checks are only necessary for casting spells from the back of a moving horse, so a mage whose mount stays in place while he's casting makes no check at all. Further, even if he is moving, as long as it's not a gallop, the DC is only 10 plus spell level, which even at first level, uh, a character should have a reasonable chance of passing. After all, that makes the DC 11 versus 1 die 20, which already has 50% chance of rolling 11 or higher, but with his level and relevant ability modifier throw-in, he's reasonably got something like a 70-75% to 75 chance of success, and this just gets better as he increases in level, especially for spells that aren't his highest level ones. Uh, even if the mount is galloping, the DC only increases by 5, which is admittedly a taller order at low levels, but again is something the mage should be able to handle after even a few levels. So ultimately, since the wizard is only going to be casting one spell per turn anyway, and will appreciate the ability to get the hell out of the way if someone closes in on him, it seems like the most effective mounted character 
may not be the paladin or knight in shining armor at all, but rather the cleric, sorcerer, or wizard. Who'd have thunk it? Certainly not me. Uh, well, so now that you've determined who's going to be riding a horse and that there's a viable reason to do so, let's uh, let's take a look at some mounts in this week's game mastery. Uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and go down our top ten mounts with some real personality. Mount number one. Brophius is an old, broken-down camel from a desert region. The light-tanned beast's hair is unkempt, and one of his eyes is half-obscured by milky-white blindness. While he's clearly seen better days, he's also seen wars and riots. And even though he's even slower than most camels, Brophius behaves like a veteran when, he's, when the pressure's on. Having borne many riders during his long life, Brophius is unusually submissive and mild-tempered for a camel. Mount number two. Shiggins is a wiry, long-legged brown horse raised by the son of a farmer. Uh, his knobby knees and quick whine give the horse an awkward and gangly appearance that belies incredible speed. A semi-wild creature, Shiggins will take a bite at just about anything smaller than it, and he will bolt uh, running for an hour or more at any loud noise, such as a thunderclap. Mountain number three. Fax is a small black horse. Apart from his subnormal size, nothing seems unusual about Fax from the outside, but in truth the young steed has been blessed by the god of longevity, and can run at a full gallop for days on end. Loving to run, Fax will flee from any master who refuses to take him out running on a daily basis. Mount number four. Norris is an old gray mare. Or is she? Actually, the elderly mare charges like a young stallion. A humble-looking horse, Norris longs for excitement and will happily run headfirst into danger, taking her rider into the very dangerous situations regardless of what they might want. Number five. Blackie, as he is now called, is actually a mighty couchamar, posing as a rather intimidating horse in a small farm town. His truly fearsome appearance has put off some of the townspeople, and he has never had a rider. Strangely, the wicked horse seems to have a strange affinity for a young man in town, allowing him to get closer than the others. In truth, Blackie is in service to a powerful demon which wants to get his hands on the young man, and should the young man ever try to mount the nightmare, he plans on whisking him off to his master at the first opportunity. Mount number six. Isper, a rare and exotic horse from a far-off land, has been highly desired by men from far and wide for her exotic appearance. Bearing alternating black and white stripes and possessed of incredibly rare violet eyes, Isper is considered beautiful by many. While practically wild, a very unruly, er, and very unruly, Isper has been sought after by dozens of wealthy merchants, and riots and fights are not uncommon in her hometown. Number seven, Vaughn is a dire lion created, reared by a druid called Garand. The mighty beast is well-groomed and armored lightly with leather plates. Stoic and loyal, Vaughn is now a mount without a rider, wandering the plains looking to his own survival following the death of Garand. Number eight, called the ultimate war beast, Thrask is a nine-headed hydra in service to the ogre warlord Bash Barshir. Sorry, Barshir. Angry red and just plain angry, Thrask kills without abandon and longs for nothing more than to kill his master. Unfortunately for the time being, Barshir has kept the uh, monster under his control, much to the uh, chagrin of the local peasants. Mount number nine. The finest battle-trained shark in the seas, Leet was awakened ten years ago by a merfolk druid. Now he serves as a war mount for creatures fighting the wicked Sahagan. Uh, this forces him to fight with his brother sharks often, and it is a fact that he is quick to relate to any who ally themselves with him. Number 10. Uh, Grovixer, a mighty green dragon mercenary selling his services as a mount for 1,000 GP a day. This is just a ruse, however, and he will intentionally drop any who try to ride him from a great height so that they may die, and he might then go and loot their bodies for whatever other coin they had on them. All right, a fascinating pack of mounts, indeed. Uh, now, however, we are just about done for the day, so I'm afraid that that is going to be all we have. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next week, and have a great day. Thank you.